ultimately, you don't know what people are going to do with your software until they get your software. So one of the use cases that our customers brought to us is Mixtros is a great facilitator of seating. Like I have a mix going on right now and people are using it to facilitate seating at a dinner they're going to do. And so, you know, that's not something we had first thought about, but obviously it makes very logical sense. And so that's something we went with. That's only something you can know from spending an extraordinary amount of time with your customer. In the beginning with Mixtros, every time our software was used, we would go to the mixes physically. Hi, Offscripters. It's your host, Sewa Ajay-Pele, and welcome to episode 175 of the She's Offscript podcast. This is a show where we hear and learn from women who've created unique blueprints for their business success. My hope is that you'll hear their stories and translate their gems into a unique path for yourself. After attending conferences where they felt like they didn't make any meaningful connections, today's guest and her mother decided to launch Mixros. Their app collects meaningful data at either live or virtual events, and the algorithm helps you identify who you should connect with while you're there. In this episode, Ashley Ammon shares how she and her mom became the 37th and 38th Black females to ever close a million-dollar-plus round of funding. She talks to us about how they built their team of engineers, how they're finding new customers, their growth plans, and so much more. Before we hear the rest of Ashley's story, I would love it if you could subscribe, rate, and review our show on Apple Podcasts or anywhere else you listen to audio podcasts. This will help to spread the word about our show so amazing stories like Ashley's can continue to inspire women looking to launch their own off-script journeys. With that, let's go off-script with the co-founder and president of Mixtros, Ashley Ammons. Ashley Ammons, welcome to She's Off-Script. Thank you for being here. Glad to be here today. Hello, everyone who's watching. So for anyone who hasn't come across you before, could you share who you are and what you do? Yeah, I am Ashley Ammons. I am a founder. I currently live in, I'm like in Atlanta, Georgia. And yeah, that's it. Represent. I'm actually uh, new to the Atlanta area. Before that, I was in Birmingham. That is where my headquarters of my company is based. That's also where my co-founder is based. My co-founder is my mom. So I think that is a fun and different fact, specifically in the tech industry. And um, we originally started our business in Nashville, Tennessee. So we've been all over. Prior to me starting this business with my mom, I was an event producer living and working in New York City. Um, but originally I come from Cleveland, Ohio. So that's like a whole lot of places and spaces, but I like to keep things fresh. Um, but I think Atlanta is going to be home for a while now. Um, as far as our software mixtures, so several years ago, my mom and I we're having a conversation and we came up with an idea for a software to address that people are generally not good at networking with one another when they're presented with the opportunity. And so we had conversations about this because we have backgrounds in event production, me, and then human resources, my mom. And we discovered that this is a problem that's shared in a whole lot of different spaces. So we primarily focus our efforts across general events inside of large enterprises, which plays on my mom's background. So think HR, diversity, inclusion, and equity, and also events that can happen 
happen inside of an enterprise and then on college campuses, so higher education. So our tool really focuses on you have people gathered somewhere. Now, what do you do with them to make sure the connectivity and the collisions happen? So our value proposition is all around using technology to increase engagement, human interaction, connection, community building, but also collect data at the same time. So how specifically does your tool do that? Um, I'm trying to imagine events that I've been at and they've had different apps that help with engagement and connectivity in that you can see who the attendees are and you can message them and things that nature. How specifically is your tool addressing that? Yeah. So like to your point that you just said, there are a ton of softwares out there today that do that part, like the here's the agenda and here's what we're going to, here's where you're supposed to go when, here are who mm-hmm. the speakers are, all of that. So because we felt like that part of the, you know, the gathering process was taken care of, we didn't focus on that. We really focused on the, how do you collide your people in a meaningful way that makes sense? How can you derive data from that? So you as an organizer are also getting some ROI from any dollars that you're spending because people in large part, they come to events to make new connections. I think we've all learned during this digital age, if we want to get access to content, that is really something that we can stream. We don't have to actually move ourselves physically to go get that content specifically today. Mm. So the way that we do that, like I had a college reach out to me last night and they are concerned with their new student orientation happening in the fall. They're going back all in person in the fall. And so, you know, they're concerned with Students at that age, you know, they had trouble connecting with one another in person because they have been born into a digital age anyway. And so with the uh, pandemic, it's kind of exacerbated that. And so the way that we're going to work with them is they will get into our application and they're going to answer a series of questions that are customizable. These questions will have to do with what their major is, um, if they're going to live on or off campus, mm-hmm. what they're in, what they're into, their interests, like are they activists, like all these kind of things. These questions are customizable. Students will answer these questions inside of our application on their mobile phone within about 60 seconds or so. And when it's time for them to get into groups, our app will take all of that data and it will tell them in real time, here's the group of five people you're matched with. Here's where you go meet them. When you get to them, here's what you guys can talk about. Here's where you have things in common. Here's where you guys differ. Here's how you guys keep connected. So we literally look at the process of the way people collide with one another and try to remove perceived areas of friction. Because even if you group people together, the next question becomes, okay, now what do we talk about? We talk about, yeah. We find with humans, there has to be a tie that binds you together. So conversations and relationships develop very differently. Even if you can say something like, I'm from the same hometown or a hometown that's similar to yours, that gives us something to go on, even if outwardly we look like we might not have a lot in common. Mm. So you've in essence created an algorithm for live events whether or not they're virtual or in person, which I love because social media tends to do that. It bubbles to the surface or to your feed things that they think you have some connection to or things that they feel you would like. Right. And you seem to have done that within the event space. Mm -hmm. When you describe the tool and everything it does, it sounds complex. How did you go about building it? Um, You have an events background, but did you have a technical background that allowed you to build the software? 
I mean, zero technical background at the start, but it's actually so funny because today I I redesigned one of our dashboards for one of our developers today. So, I mean, it's a lot of learning on the fly, but Mm -hmm. I mean, I think the running joke with my mom and I, because she didn't have a tech background either. And I would say she was a very novice. She would tell you this. She was a very novice like technology user, like an iPhone was a big deal for her when she got it. So, um, we went to the University of Google for everything. And so, you know, I, when I'm talking to entrepreneurs or people who are starting their business journey or thinking about starting on a business journey, like the benefit that we have is it's not like we have to go to a library and sift through books these days. Everything you have is at the click of button. You just have to have the willingness to be able to get down and search for it until you find exactly what you're looking for. But I find whether you're building a technology, whether you have a product, whatever the case is, the stories have been written on entrepreneurs who have done this before you and who have been successful. And I think it's your job to look at their stories and figure out how to evolve it to your own. Mm, Exactly. So did you hire a tech team? Did you have friends who were software developers that helped you develop the software itself? So it's funny. I think that serendipity is throughout my mom and I's story. Something we say often internally at Mixtros and even with customers is we engineer serendipity because serendipity, like if you wait for it to happen, it's likely not to happen. But how can we like stack the deck in your favor? And so in the very beginning of our journey, my mom decided to attend CES, which is the Consumer Electronics Show in Las Vegas. It's always at the top of the year. We had came up with this idea at the end of 2014. So in 2015, she was going to go. I couldn't go because I was still working full time. And the top of the year was super busy for me because it was award season when I was doing events. And so my mom goes to CES and she's standing at a table by herself and she's feeling very just like out of her comfort zone because she is, you know, a black female of a certain age at a tech conference. Clearly, there weren't a lot of people who looked like her specifically back then. There weren't a lot of people who looked like her. And these two older white gentlemen come and join her at her table and they come to figure out that like they thought it was their table. She thought it was her table, but they had actually left drinks on this table. So anyway, they get to talking and those two actually became our app developers. So, I mean, it is a story of, you know, collisions matter. Like if that collision wouldn't have happened, I don't know how far we would have gotten in the business because they were the perfect partners for us at the stage that we were at. We were able to put a lot of trust in them. You know, I'm sure that you've heard horror stories about entrepreneurs who like, you know, give money to development agencies. Mm -hmm. And then like it costs like an astronomical amount from where you set it to begin with and all of that. We don't have any of that stories because we happen to have this just very pure connection with the right people for us at the right time. They were actually and still are based in um, California. So we when they were our developers, we had only met them like over the course of years. We only met them in person maybe four times. And the rest of our relationship was carried on virtually, you know, before that was in vogue. Mm -hmm. So um, that is how we met our developers. So we got lucky in that instance. But realistically, for people who are looking for dev talent, there's a lot of different places you can go. 
I always point people in the direction of their entrepreneur center because that is a great place to go and get connected. But certainly like if you're a younger entrepreneur, like if you're in college and you have an idea, you need to head on over to your computer science um, department and figure out if there is another student there who shares your passion for whatever it is that you're building and get your development done that way. Um, That's a wonderful way to keep things low and also keep prices low, let's say, and also gain a co-founder. You know, I think that there's value in going with someone who is new. But I think if you go with somebody who's fresh out of college on dev, you have to really be ready to hold their hand through that process because that will be their first working experience. Or you can go with a dev firm. And before you go with a dev firm, you just want to make sure that you talk to customers that they've had and understand why the customer likes them. If the customer would work with them again, you know, did we stay on budget? You know, all those critical and important things like entrepreneurs can't be scared to ask all the questions because when you're an entrepreneur, specifically in the beginning, you have a limited amount of resources at your disposal and you have to be smart with those dollars. That's true. So speaking of dollars, I'm glad that it was kind of serendipitous for you to connect with these these software engineers, but how much did it cost you? Because over the course of, I don't know how many years, you're bound to go through multiple iterations of your, of your platform. So Uh how did those unfold for you? And what is a, a price tag we can expect to affix to that development? Yeah. I mean, I feel like that question is just so variable. It really depends on the thing that you're building. Mm-hmm. I will say it is smart in my opinion to go. So the first thing I tell entrepreneurs is do not build a thing until you figure out how to non-technically cobble something together that mimics what you want to do to see if the market actually wants this thing that you've built. So Mm -hmm. that is the first step. Like don't spend any money or spend, I'm talking about hundreds, not thousands of dollars to figure it out. So, you know, for Mixtros, the way we would have done that is go into a networking event and kind of mimic what we wanted our software to do do, whether we did it by hand or, you know, whatever the case was going to be to see if our hypothesis was correct, if people would adapt to what we were asking them to do and if it derived the result we were looking for. So that's step one. After you've gone through step one and it's been successful for you, then you're going to want to build your MVP. So that's like the minimal viable product. And you're going to want to, you know, bring it to life as quickly as possible. So a lot of people will spend a lot of time on the MVP, filling it with all these features and making it beautiful and whatnot. Mm-hmm. Um, Reed Hoffman, who's the founder, one of the founders of LinkedIn, he says, if you released a, a beautiful product, your first iteration, you probably released it too late mm-hmm. because you spent too long making it perfect because ultimately, you don't know what people are going to do with your software until they get your software. So one of the use cases that our customers brought to us is Mixtros is a great facilitator of seating. Like I have a mix going on right now and people are using it to facilitate seating at a dinner they're going to do. And so, you know, that's not something we had first thought about um, top of mind, but obviously it makes very logical sense. And so that's something we went with. That's only something you can know from spending an extraordinary amount of time with your customer. In the beginning with Mixtros, every time our software was used, we would go to the mixes physically, us go there because we wanted to see what, who, what, when, where, why, how. And, you know, that was not a scalable way to run the business back then, but ultimately it teaches you a ton of lessons about what's going on, what's going wrong, things that you need to correct, things that you need to make clearer, et cetera. So then after that, 
you're getting into, you know, you're wanting to roll out like the first actual versions of your product. We're on our mm. fourth version of the product. And so it's gone through multiple iterations. Today, I have a, um, a full-time CTO and two devs working underneath him. So, you know, that's a whole different story because these are, you know, employees or contractors that are working for you full-time. So that comes with its own price tag. But to give everybody an idea in the very beginning, we raised a round of friends and family funding. We raised about $200,000. We were able to stretch that money over like three years, which is absurd and crazy. And <laughs> I honestly can't believe we did it. That means we were grow we were going forward very slow. But for us, that worked because we didn't want to go into debt and we didn't we didn't know what we didn't know. You know, this was like, uh, this was a new frontier for us. No one in our family had been an entrepreneur before. So we were very careful in the way that we were going about doing it. That's mm -hmm. sometimes contrary to how you're supposed to build businesses, you know, fast and break things and all of that. But we just didn't have that grace, right? So after that, we were able to raise like our first real round of funding. So that was a million dollars at the end of 2018, deploy that capital. And then we were able to raise subsequent rounds. So all in and all today we've raised about 2.5 million dollars and um we're looking to raise again in the okay. fall now you said something crucial don't build out this beast of an app platform whatever it is before you know that number one you have customers that are willing to purchase from you and number two that they are using Correct. it in the way that you think they're going to be using it because you may have all these bells and whistles that no one really cares about. Right. And instead they were like, how about this? How about this? That's and you right. could have spent your money on those features. So how did you go about finding your first group of customers? Uh, we went to our networks. So because of the fields that we were in that were relevant in this space, you know, we went to our networks. Like when we were very first testing out Mixtros, we would literally invite people over to my mom's house. We're talking like 40 people at a time and have them come in and use the app. And we would make groupings off that to see what our you know friends, family, neighbors did with it. And we saw positive outcomes because even though all of these people had a thread together, which is they were all friends of us of, you know, in some way, we found that they were establishing deeper relationships with sit talking to each other for hours at our house to the point where we were like, okay, great. It's like midnight. Y'all have to go home. Um, so, you know, we saw that, saw those positive indicators and that is kind of what helped us know to move forward. Like, you know, that was our very non-scientific version of beta testing, but it worked. Um, it worked for what we were doing. You know, I think people need to really think when they hear terms like beta testing and whatnot, that can sound very clinical, Clinical, it can sound very cumbersome, but really distill your idea down to its purest form and figure out how you can get it done. And um, you're um, oftentimes able to get the same, you know, the same, if not mm, better, I, I like think, that. result. And so as you've figured out, this is solidly how we want to operate our business. You've gone through four versions, as you mentioned. How do you plan out your growth path because you said you went slow in order to grow fast later on so as a business once you hit your stride mm -hmm. how are you as you know the head of a business plotting out your your path for growth yeah so it's a it's a really complicated question for us because we had this really 
crazy trajectory where we raised our first round of funding in the end of 2018. Over the course of 2019, we deployed that capital. And so something that's um, tough about being a woman and a founder of color is capital is not as readily accessible as it is for other groups. Therefore, when you raise capital, like it can take a long time into your can journey. So what we there? found is over the course I of- I hear 20- that often. Yeah. What does it mean that it's difficult for you to raise capital? It means there's like 1% of us like who are actually out here raising capital. It means that there is, uh, and I'm saying 1% of women, like women of color, black females in particular, probably even less than that. I'm saying that the number of black females who have raised over a million dollars in capital is around a hundred, like a hundred ever. Like mm-hmm. not in one state, like a hundred across the U.S. ever. Like I can't name to you how many white males r- raised uh, like over a million dollars, like probably in the last month or week. But I know that there are around a hundred black females who have done it ever. So, you know, this is really breaking new ground and it has a lot to do with, you know, networks. Funding gets raised based on who you know and who you're connected with. Um, it kind of has less to do with your business, which is, you know, odd. We're slowly, as people of color, getting more access to these networks, but also we're building our own. So um, that, you know, it's it's kind of, it's a privilege, but also it's a privilege, but also disappointing to be a part of this class that's like paving the way, hopefully for mm-hmm. generations that are coming after us so that they don't have to go through all of this painful work just to get to the beginning mm-hmm. part of the entrepreneurial journey in the sense that you're going to raise funding and that sort of thing. And I feel like that's pretty typical mm-hmm. for somebody no, building thank you something for in kind tech. of pulling that out for us because you hear that so often and people don't understand. They, they don't quite understand what the lived experience of an entrepreneur trying to raise funding looks like because they think, oh, I mean, there are all these people out there and they have money and they're writing checks in Silicon Valley, right? Um, (laughs) Yeah, they're not. (laughs) I'm like, I'm like, they're not. And it's certainly better than when we started, like, just to give a like a like a solid example when we were first raising friends and family funding back in you know 2015 2016 black women on average were raising about $36,000 at the same stage that a white male would raise a million so that is a huge gap to try to figure out because if you know in tech, $36,000, I mean, that might be a month of runway and that's like a very conservative month of runway, you know, so you can't really do much with that. Um, even with the 200,000 we raised, you know, spreading it over three years, like when you break it up, like it's not that much money. It sounds like these great sums of money, but it's not specifically when you compare it to what else is going on, you know, for some of these other companies, startups, whatnot, there's a reason why they're able to grow so fast and go so fast because they can put money behind marketing and whatnot. And, you know, for larger companies, when we're talking about a marketing budget, you know, we're talking 50,000, 100,000 and more per month in marketing to make sure that people know about their product. When you're a startup my size, you can't really do that. And you need to think about how you can get it done another way. So that's why, okay. you know, so it's kind of going slower. back on track. You were talking to us about how you plot out your growth then given your ability to raise capital. Yes. Yes. So what we found is after raising that first million dollars, because we had been in the business, because the raise happened in 2018, we had 
thought of the idea for Mixtros at the end of 2014, we basically had to go back and grow up everything that we kind of cobbled together in those first several years of the business. So that's why as a founder of color, you can kind of always feel like um, you're running a race, but you have a delay. And so that is, you know, that is like the struggle and that's totally real. So basically over 2019, we deployed that capital and fixed everything from the first several years of our business so that we could actually start operating like a business this instead of a mom and pop. Um, then over the course of you know 2019, we did all those fixes. Coming out in 2020, we were looking strong and then a pandemic came out of nowhere. And at the time we were only operating as an in-person focused software. And so, you know, it was a scary time, but frankly, we're big believers that like life and entrepreneurship, they prepare you for what is prepared for you. And so we basically already knew how to be broke because we had done it the first several years of our business. And so we were able to like reel things in, get our burn rate back under control and focus on getting a virtual feature out, which we did successfully, which allowed us to raise another round of funding at the end of 2020. And then we went back to the drawing board over the course of 21 because our markets experienced huge market shifts Mm -hmm. just in the way culture changed, you know, over the course of going through a pandemic and all of that. And so at the top of this year, we were able to introduce like our fourth version of the software and now we're in a phase where we're really focused on customer acquisition. So the things that are important to me right now is getting our digital marketing right. For us, you know, through testing, we've discovered that that's not... um, the best place for us is likely LinkedIn, mm-hmm. like running ads on LinkedIn to get people into our top of funnel that way, as well as um, channel partnerships. And so what I mean by that is... We're in this wave of technology where there's so much technology that has been established. It makes sense for us to try to partner with complementary softwares who don't do what we do mm-hmm. and they don't, you know, and vice versa, basically. And so, for example, like Cvent, huge events platform, have, you know, tens of thousands of customers and they don't do what we do and we don't do what they do. They're a great channel partner for us. So it's really us running down those opportunities to see what's possible Mm -hmm. as we continue to grow. Going back to something you said earlier, you mentioned having to go back and grow up specific parts of your business so you could operate like a real business. So taking this from the perspective of people listening and watching now who are at the beginning of the business, perhaps you could share a bit of, in retrospect, what you would have established differently so that you were running as you know a more mature business from the get-go? Well, it's interesting because it depends on the capital that you have access to because I don't know if some of the things I would recommend right now are even possible for mm. the person who is scrappy at the beginning. And frankly, I think there is value in being scrappy at the beginning because then you appreciate when that grow-up comes, when you get more sophisticated in your approach and your process and whatnot. So here's like I would say a huge line item. So automation behind your business, I think is critical because when you're when you're operating as mm. a small team and there are six of us so when you're operating as a small team you need technology and automation to help you where possible so for example we have you know our customer system which is hubspot and you know back in the day we didn't have yeah. hubspot i was the hubspot you know so having to manually remember to remind people to do things to make sure that their events were going well and whatnot instead of today where 
if they click something in their dashboard and it's wrong, they're going to get an email to let them know. So it's growing up those processes. You know, what happens to someone after they book a demo with you? Are they reminded about that demo? Do they get on the demo? If they miss the demo, what happens? If they get on the demo, what happens? How do you close that sale for them? Once they close the sale, how do you onboard them? How do you make it so that using your software is super easy that they want to continue using it? After they use it one time, how do you continue to retain that customer? So it's all those steps in a sales process that you're kind of just like shooting at the hip in the beginning. And that's not necessarily a bad thing because again, I think that's an opportunity Mm -hmm. for learning. I love that. And once you know it and you know it works, then you can automate it. Okay. So you talked about the next phase of growth for you looks like channel partnerships. And I think that often leads into the role of a CEO or the role of someone at the helm of a small business. What are you focused on? What is your time focused on right now versus what are you delegating? Because it's important that you're focused on the right things when you're leading a business in order for you to grow well. Yeah, for sure. So I would definitely say, you know, a big hand in the in the channel partnership piece, I would say when I look at my mom and I, my mom is more, my mom is actually the CEO of the company. And the reason for that is her background aligns with that. And my background aligns with, we don't quite know what my title is, which it really doesn't matter anyway. Uh, But my background aligns more with customer facing things. So I would say my mom is our macro thinker and I'm our micro thinker, thinker. So macro focuses on things like legal and compliance and investors and funding and all that kind of thing. And then I'm more focused on like, you know, I'm in the nitty gritty with our dev team going back and forth on how dashboards are looking, like how we can grow up, you know, sections of our product and that sort of thing. I'm thinking about how people are coming into the funnel. So if we're on LinkedIn, what do those ads say? Are those ads working? Are we continually iterating on what those ads are so we can reach our target customer? You know, I think both my mom and I both share just being out there and kind of spreading the word on the business. So we're involved with different like associations and things where opportunities come up to speak. Like that's a great, um, that's a great selling tactic for us. We find if we go somewhere and we speak, we generally get business from that. So, you know what I mean? We try to, we try to stay out in front of those things as well. So, you know, I would say my time is split, but right now we are focused on like, as I'm looking at the summer, my focus has to do with customer acquisition and product. Those are the two things that I'm focused on for the summer to have them being in a better position from where they are today to where we'll be come August, let's say. And, you know, I'm looking at it too. Last summer, my huge project was a complete rebrand. So we literally redesigned every single page of our website. Mm. Dear Lord, that was a labor of love because we had to start with the logo and then work ourselves back. And that included all the content that went on the website, all of the look, feel, aesthetic, icons, everything. And so that's what I, you know, spent my time doing. But in doing that, you know, I now have a brand that when I'm able to partner with like a C-Vent, I'm able to stand up next mm-hmm. to their brand. And, and that's it something about the come up, right? <laughs> Where you started may have been DIY, but once now you have 2.5 million plus, yeah. it needs to match, right? <laughs> the math needs to math that you have all this money. Yeah. Therefore, the appearance, the appearance and your processes and things of that nature also need to be up to par. 
Right. And let me say, I need to remind people because people will come and say, oh, 2.5 million. You have to keep in mind that's 2.5 million mm-hmm. from 2015. So again, if we do the math and divvy that all up, it's really not that much money. However, I will say when I come in contact with investors, they recognize that we've done a lot with not so much. And, um, you know, and it's funny because in the in the space that we're in right now, there is a focus on capital efficiency. So I think when we first were starting the business, a lot of people were like burning through their money really fast. And they were doing things that were just like crazy, like, you know, buying offices and furnishing them crazy and like, you know, focusing on like having pets in the office and all this kind of thing. And when you're capital mm-hmm. efficient, that's not even on your mind. Like, I mean, one of the first things to go for us when the pandemic hit, we were like, oh, we don't need an office. Oh, we don't need this. We don't need that. And so um, capital efficiency is now sexy. And we certainly use that to our benefit. Is there as such we a thing as being too capital efficient though? Because sometimes as black women, I feel like we carry the world on our backs. Like we can do it all, right? We can barrel through it. And that's it. you don't necessarily have to, right? So how, what, what is the balance of being capital efficient, but not trying to do it all with too little? I think it's definitely a double-edged sword because my mom has suffered from, and I would say mostly her because Mm -hmm. she's definitely in charge of finance. And I would say because we were so capital efficient in the very beginning in raising rounds later on, it has become difficult for her to see the value in releasing monies for different things, although it's necessary. And, you know, it's something that she will tell you that she's still in the process of adjusting to because our reality has changed and we know we need to do those things, but yeah, it's, um, it's, 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 it's a learning curve. And yes, I think there is to a certain detriment, like, you know, of being so capital efficient because you don't realize. So now as you look to, as you said, take your company to the next level this summer, how can we support you? Because I think that's something that's lacking for a better, lack of, lack of a better term, right? Is yeah. we don't tend to know how to support each other because I may not necessarily be your target customer, but there's still probably ways that we could support you that we are not aware of. For sure. So I always say this, I'm like, if you work at a company that has humans, then you can definitely mention me to your HR events, diversity and inclusion departments. You can send them right over to our website, mixtures.com, which I'm sure you'll have in notes and all of that. And we have live demos that people can sign up for. They happen a couple times a week. You can book a direct demo. And I think it's really about awareness. Like in the beginning, before we got very digitized with our marketing approach, a lot of our business came from word of mouth. And that word of mouth would come from, you know, somebody would use Mixtros while they were working at their job. And then they would be like, oh, this was handy. I'm going to take this to my church or to Mm -hmm. my other group that I'm affiliated with or whatever. And so that's an amazing thing when that happens, because number one, it just bodes so well for your business that attendees are talking about it. Um, But number two, that's how you get like some organic virality to happen where people are coming to you, you know, for this thing, because they heard about you from somewhere else. And I think, you know, as a business owner, there's no more positive thing than a referral. So, I mean, just to mention that this business exists, because I think that's one of the hardest things for us. 
there's not a lot of people in our category because people aren't really focusing on this part. Like, you know, unless you're in the industry, you don't understand what a pain point this can be. And so I'm here to let people know there is an easier way and there's software that does this and it's called Mixtros. All right. Well, thank you so much for sharing your story with us today. And I know it's going to really impact someone as they grow their business as well. Absolutely. It was a pleasure to be here and good luck to everybody. I mean, if you're thinking about doing a business or you're doing a business, like the hardest thing is to get started, to commit to it and all of that. And I think as you're on this journey, you have to be smart, but also remember entrepreneurship is this period in your life that will be uncomfortable. And as an entrepreneur, you have to learn how to embrace discomfort and it's okay because it won't last forever. It should just be a short period on your road to get to great. Oh, I appreciate that insight. Thank you. You're welcome. Hi, Offscripters. I'm so glad you made it to the end of this episode. If you found this show helpful, please pay it forward by sharing us with your network and leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts. Between episodes, you can find us on Instagram. Our handle is at She's Offscript. Or you can catch up on past episodes at She's Offscript.com. All right, with that, we'll see you right back here next Thursday for another episode. Bye.